Open your Bibles this morning to the ninth chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, where we will proceed further in our study of this great lesson by the Apostle Paul to believing Jews toward the end of the time of Reformation when Old Testament worship was being changed over to New Testament worship. This morning, to get the maximum value out of the sermon, you need to pretend you're a Jew. Now, you are spiritual Jews, according to the testimony of Scripture, but pretend you are actually a Hebrew, a descendant of Abraham, a true Semite. And you had been raised in the religion of the Jews, familiar with their tabernacle, familiar with the articles of furniture in that tabernacle, familiar with all the different sacrifices that were offered, the blood that you saw shed over and over and over again in that Old Testament worship. And let us look at Hebrews chapter 9 and make as much progress as we can in this chapter to see how the apostle takes those old religious rituals of the Old Testament and preaches Christ through them and shows Jesus Christ to be the fulfillment of them, that they in themselves were nothing but figures, pictures, or representations of the true means of salvation, which is in Christ. They had no salvation of their own. They were never intended to save. They never saved anyone. And yet a whole nation of people were shut up under that system of religion for generations. And then Jesus Christ came and revealed the true way of salvation. Hebrews chapter 9. Do you realize that to this point we have not had the word blood, B-L-O-O-D, mentioned one time relative to Jesus Christ or providing an atonement for sin? I find Paul's method of arguing in this book to be absolutely beautiful. How he begins so slowly in such an agreeable way with the Jews' religion. And then as he develops his arguments in chapters 3 and 4, he shows them that they ought not to be like their fathers in the wilderness and miss the rest of God. And indeed, there is a rest that remains for the people of God, he points out. In chapter 5 and 7, he deals with the great priesthood of Christ that there is a better priesthood than that of Levi and Aaron. In chapter 8, he shows that there's a better covenant that has better promises than the covenant God made with Moses and Israel. And then when we get to chapter 9, he feels that his argument is developed sufficiently that he can introduce blood shedding that is superior to all the blood shedding of the old covenant. If you had been a Jew you would have spent thousands of dollars, a great percentage of your gross income in animal sacrifices every year to try and atone for sin. And all that blood you shed, Paul comes out with a message that it was all worthless. That salvation is only in the blood of Christ. And that as far as the eternal redemption of their souls, it was to no avail. Hebrews chapter 9. In chapter 8, he introduced the new covenant. 
And remember what a new covenant is. It's a new way of worshiping God. It's not a new way of salvation. If there's one point I need to leave this book clearly, with clearly, it is the fact that there has always been one way of salvation by the everlasting covenant in the Godhead. God the Father elected, Christ the Son justified, the Holy Spirit regenerates, and they together will glorify God's saints. That is salvation. That's always been the way of salvation. But God hasn't always revealed that way of salvation. He's kept it hid for 4,000 years until Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, and others appeared on the scene to preach the gospel of the grace of God. But in that new covenant, we have a new order of things, a new priesthood, new promises, a new method of worshiping God, new ordinances. That's what we take up in chapter 9. Then. That then refers to the first covenant. Then, verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. If you remember at the beginning of chapter 8, Paul describes Jesus Christ in verse 2 as a minister of the true sanctuary. A minister of the true sanctuary. Paul teaches there is a sanctuary someplace where Jesus Christ is the priest. This sanctuary is in heaven. We saw that in chapter 8. Not only that, Jesus Christ is here described as a minister. A minister has to have ordinances. A minister has to have sacrifices to offer. Because if a minister doesn't have ordinances or doesn't have a sacrifice, what in the world does that functional title minister stand for? He's got to be doing something in order to earn that title. From that brief introduction, and we covered that last Lord's Day, from that brief introduction, two weeks ago we covered it also, Paul introduces that Jesus Christ operates in a sanctuary. He is in a temple. He is in the presence of God someplace. And he is performing a function as a minister or as a priest. He has sacrifices. He has gifts. He's performing ordinances, things that God ordained. And what Paul does in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1, he's, he draws from that by saying, Then, verily, back then, under the first covenant, it was true that we also had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Paul is comparing heaven to the Jews' religion. He's not comparing the New Testament to the Jews' religion. He's comparing heaven to the Jews' religion. He hasn't introduced the ordinances of the New Testament church yet. He'll get to that in Hebrews chapter 13. He's comparing heaven to Moses' system of religion. You know, why does it call the Old Covenant the First Covenant? Was that the first covenant God made? What was the first covenant God made in the absolute sense of those words? The everlasting covenant was the first covenant. It's always first and second, old and new, because there's two primary covenants in the Word of God as far as God's administration of religious worship with His people. The Mosaic system of the nation of Israel, the apostolic administration of the New Testament. 
Those are the two systems, and that's why it's called the first covenant. That covenant had ordinances of divine service. Now, I want to chase a rabbit this morning. I don't do it very often. And when I do it, I usually tell you. But I want to chase one this morning, and I want to chase the rabbit whose head I see at the word ordinances. Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service. What is an ordinance? Now this says ordinances of divine service. That helps a little bit. The way in which you serve the deity. The way in which you serve the divinity. Divine service. The way you serve God is determined by ordinances. Now look at verse 6. Having spoken of several of those first covenant aspects of divine service, Paul said, Now when these things were thus ordained, an ordinance is some thing God ordained for His service. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That is so simple it almost is a waste of time to cover it. An ordinance is some thing God ordained for His service. Look at verse 10. Which stood only in meats and drinks and diver washings, divers washings, and carnal ordinances. If you've read the book of Hebrews, according to my recommendation that you read this book once in a while over the last few weeks, you know that Hebrews 9 is talking about all different types of tabernacle ritual, sacrifices, and routines the priests went through. And all of those are here called carnal ordinances. They were all things that God ordained for His divine service under the Old Testament. And when God wants to unordain them, He does. And He unordained them during the time of Reformation when He brought in new ordinances, new things ordained by God for His service. And those are the ordinances of the New Testament. Let's look at a couple of references to further prove this point. Because I'm going to make a strong statement this morning that some of you may choke on if we don't grease your throat with some of these other verses. Numbers chapter 19 will be the first reference. Numbers chapter 19. When I say grease your throat, I remember when I couldn't swallow pills at an early age, my mother used to hide them in a spoonful of jelly. I'd suck all the jelly off and still have that bitter little thing in my mouth. Numbers chapter 19, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring thee a red heifer, without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. I wish I could read the rest of that chapter. You'll need it to get through the rest of Hebrews chapter 9, because it will speak of the ashes of an heifer purifying the flesh. This chapter describes taking this red heifer, cutting her throat, letting blood run out all over the place, and then burning the entire thing up. Hooves, skin, internals, dung, everything. You burn it, then you take the ashes, put them in a jar someplace, and whenever anyone had leprosy, 
and they needed to be purified, you came to the priest, he took some of those ashes, mixed them with water, took a hyssop, which was a branch of a tree, and anointed the person and everything that he had touched, and that purified it. But that's another story. We'll get to that later in this chapter, but that's right here. But notice what it is. It's an ordinance. Doesn't that fit well with Hebrews 9, which says that all the things in Hebrews 9 are carnal ordinances? But the point I want you to get is this. Verse 2, this is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded. God commands laws for His service, and those laws are called ordinances. You say, you're beating a dead horse with me. We'll see. Well, this is an important point, and it makes a big difference between us and the Catholics, and between us and the Presbyterians, and between us and Baptists. Look at Numbers chapter 31. Numbers chapter 31 and verse 21. This, are the, this is the Geneva Convention for Israel's warfare. These are the restrictions God placed upon the Israelites making war with other nations. There were limitations on what they could take. God wanted some of it burned. And if they could burn everything up and there was a puddle of gold left, go ahead and take that and we'll use it. But here is the ordinance. Verse 21. And Eleazar the priest said unto the men of war which went to the battle, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord commanded Moses. And then he goes on to describe that particular law. The point I want you to get, and I'll repeat myself again, an ordinance is a law that God commands to be observed in His service. Ordinances of divine service. Laws of divine service. Commandments of divine service. God wants to be served in a very particular way. I mean, very particular. There was an ordinance in Israel that said there ought to be golden staves in the sides of the ark. Do you remember that from a couple of weeks ago? <coughs> the priests were to carry those staves on their shoulder and carry that little gold box whenever they moved it. David once broke an ordinance of the Lord. He had that Ark of the Covenant transported on a new ox cart. <laughs> he did make it a new one. He did throw a great celebration, but God still killed a man. Because the Bible says he did not follow God according to the, quote, due order, unquote. The due order are God's ordinances. Can, can you, do you like playing with words at all? If something's, you know, ordinances, the definition of ordinances is something that has been ordered. David didn't follow God according to the due order. He broke the ordinance. You say, but he loved the ark. God doesn't care if you love the ark, but you don't do it properly. God doesn't care if you love the Lord's Supper. If you observe it improperly, you're doing it unworthily, and you'll most likely be weak, sickly, or dead as a result. Ordinances are laws that God commands for serving Him. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 15. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 15. I hate the church of Rome so much I can barely stand it. 
You say, is it right to hate something like that? I guess I don't need to quote Psalm 119 and verse 128 then, or Psalm 139, or a couple dozen other places, where we are to hate the ways of the wicked. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 15, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He eliminated all the differences between Jews and Gentiles. And it says in verse 15 that He abolished in His flesh the enmity. What made a difference between Jews and Gentiles? All the ordinances made a difference. The ordinances were given to the, given to the Jews and the Gentiles had none. Having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So what's, a com what's an ordinance? A law that's commanded by God. That's right. Very simple. Anything that God commands for His service is an ordinance. This morning, let's try to remember something about the Church of Rome. And the Bible tells us that the, the whore of Rome, the great mother church, is the mother of abominations of the earth and the mother of harlots. False churches in this world will find their doctrine and their abominations coming from Rome. And the abominations themselves will come from Rome. So it's always good to go back and look at how Rome does things and then see Rome's influence on churches today, including Baptist churches. The church I was raised in. The Roman Catholic Church teaches salvation by sacramentalism. There are seven sacraments in the Church of Rome by which you are saved. A sacrament is a commandment of the New Testament that they have exalted to a position of preeminence above all other commandments of the New Testament, and they've given those seven commandments the value, the power to communicate saving grace. What are they? Let's try to remember. <laughs> what happens first? Baptism. Confirmation. The Mass. Penance. Marriage. Holy Orders. Extreme unction, last rites. Now, those seven things, although greatly corrupted in their doctrine, are taught in the New Testament except for the one over here called last rites. Six of them are taught. Marriage is taught in the New Testament, isn't it? They make marriage a sacrament that when you're married, God conveys grace through that marriage as long, of course, as it's performed in a Catholic church and it involves a cracker God and everything else that goes along with the Catholic Church. If we are to be apostolic and to be saved from the influence of Rome, you better pay attention. That church believes in seven commandments of the New Testament as being of greater importance than the rest of the commandments of the New Testament and that those seven communicate grace to those that participate in them. Now, along around 15 and 1600, John Kelvin, Martin Luther, Wesley's, and others decided they ought to leave the Catholic Church. So when they sat down to come up with their new church, they didn't sit down with the Bible.
they sat down with a systematic theology of the Roman Catholic Church, and they said, what should we keep and what should we shed? Well, we don't like purgatory, so we'll drop that one. We don't like the selling of indulgences, so we'll drop that one. We don't like the infallibility of the Pope, so we'll drop that one. If we ever need it, I'll just use it for myself. But we'll drop it. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, I like that one. Well, when I take that cracker in my mouth, I want to believe that it's God. So they kept it. They looked at baptism. We can't let mothers think that their babies are going to go to hell. We need to baptize those babies. So the Roman Catholic systematic theology said you ought to baptize babies by pouring water on them. We'll do it. And they kept it. They looked at ordination. They said that isn't really a sacrament. We'll drop that one. They looked at extreme unction. That isn't really a sacrament. We'll drop that one. They kept baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism, just the way the Catholics had done it. The Lord's Supper, very close to the way the Catholics did it. And guess what they called those two things? Sacraments. Sacraments. A sacrament means an external commandment of God that conveys grace. Protestantism? We aren't Protestants by any stretch of the imagination. They protested against five and kept two. We damn all seven of them. They kept two commandments of the New Testament and called them sacraments. Now along come some of the first Baptist associations. And I am talking about the London Association of Baptists in 1689. 50, 60 years before there was ever an association of Baptists in America. They sat down to come up with their theology, and guess what? They took the systematic theologies of the Presbyterians. They did not go to the Word of God. They went to the Presbyterians, and if you'll read the foreword to the Confessions, they will tell you they did that. If you have ever lined up the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Philadelphia Confession of Faith and the London Confession of Faith and the the Articles of the Church of England and the Congregational Confession of Faith, guess what? They're all worded the same way and their chapters have the same titles. And they'll tell you, we wanted to show our agreement with our brethren, the Presbyterians. Now they came to the two sacraments toward the end of that Confession of Faith of the Presbyterians, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Remember, it came out in the mid-1500s. No, it came out in 1646. 1646 was the Westminster. The Baptists had their first one of an association in 1689. There were plenty of confessions before that, brethren. 1689. Now, they came to the section that said two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, they knew enough of the Bible that baptism ought to be by immersion and ought to be performed only upon those that believe. They knew enough of the Lord's Supper that Jesus Christ wasn't there in body, blood, soul, and divinity. But they did believe He was there spiritually, and that when you ate of the bread, you were feeding on Jesus Christ, which I have yet to figure out. Those are their words. But enough on that. They looked at the word sacrament. Now, Baptists are intelligent enough to know that grace does not come by means of New Testament commandments. But what they did is they took those two sacraments of Rome and called them the ordinances of the New Testament church. 
If this morning I would have asked you, what are the ordinances of the Greenville Church? Out of 59 members, I dare say 55, would have said baptism and the Lord's Supper. Where does that doctrine come from? I've just traced it for you. It comes from the mother of harlots who takes certain commands and gives them an exalted value. We don't believe in two ordinances. That'd be an easy religion, wouldn't it? We've got hundreds of ordinances in the New Testament. Everything God commanded for a New Testament church to observe are the ordinances of a New Testament church. The Lord's Supper is no more important than any other ordinance. Prove that to me with a Bible. I know you can prove it with the confession of faith, but that's no proof in my book. My book says, let God be true and every man a liar. Everything the New Testament commands for a New Testament church to practice is an ordinance of the New Testament church. It is something God has ordained for His service. And if I, as your pastor over the last four years, have intentionally or inadvertently, by emphasis or by word, laid greater emphasis on baptism or the Lord's Supper as ordinances of the New Testament church, God forgive me and you forget it. Because that's dead. Rome started with seven and called them sacraments. The Protestants, who are really disguised Roman Catholics, reduced that to two and still called them sacraments. The Baptists came along and wanted to show their union with their Presbyterian brethren. I don't want any union with Presbyterian brethren. And they called them ordinances. That is where it came from. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. Other than the places I've just turned you to, where, what are they? Hebrews 9.1, Hebrews 9.6, Hebrews 9.10, Ephesians 2.15. This is the other occurrence of the word ordinances. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 1, Paul said, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. I wish our brethren in London had believed that, that they should have followed Paul rather than John Calvin and the Presbyterians. Who cares about wanting to show union with the Presbyterians? Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now get verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. This is the other occurrence of the word ordinances in the New Testament. Paul said, I praise you, Corinthians, that ye keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Does that verse teach that Paul was praising the Corinthians for the way they baptized and the way they kept the Lord's Supper? I want to prove to you right now that Paul didn't include either of those ordinances when he said that. When Paul used the word ordinances in 1 Corinthians 11:2, 2, he wasn't including either ordinance of baptism of the Lord's Supper. First of all, it's rule out baptism. Baptism isn't an ordinance of the church. Will you show me anywhere in the Bible where a church baptized anyone? 
That's like taking the statement over there in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that a minister ought to give himself wholly to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, and apply that to the whole church. Is that a church ordinance? That's a ministerial ordinance. That's an ordinance. What is an ordinance? A law commanded by God for His service that is laid upon ministers to give themselves wholly to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. That's not a church ordinance. That's why when you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, be careful of drawing strict application of some of those ordinances in those three books. Those are ministerial ordinances. Every man that's ever been baptized was baptized by a minister. Baptized properly, of course. I mean, you can find churches where the women could baptize. If I wasn't in town, my wife could do it. A deacon could do it. A deacon's wife could do it. I mean, they don't care in many churches. A person is baptized in order to be qualified to become a member of a New Testament church. Baptism is a necessary prerequisite to being added to a New Testament church. The church doesn't do the baptizing. When a person is baptized, they are outside the church. They are baptized in order to become a member and be added to the church. It's a ministerial ordinance. You can't find a single occasion in the Word of God where a church is instructed on how to baptize or to baptize. Baptism was given to Christ's teachers as early as Matthew chapter 28. In fact, it was a long time before that. John the Baptist was a teacher of Jesus Christ and he did the baptizing. The man who does the preaching does the baptizing. It's a ministerial ordinance. It is not an ordinance of the church. The qualification for a person to be baptized for a person to be baptized is not determined by the church. It's determined by the administrator. Philip, when he was out in the middle of the desert and came to an oasis and the eunuch wanted to be baptized, did not send a carrier pigeon back to Jerusalem and ask, do you give permission for me to baptize this Ethiopian eunuch? He baptized him. It lies within the conscience and breast of the administrator to determine whether a person is qualified. When the eunuch said, what doth hinder me? Philip didn't say, you've got to come back to Jerusalem with me and get permission. He said, if you believe, you may. Who makes the judgment of the faith? The administrator. The man who's preaching the faith ought to be a pretty good judge whether a person believes that faith or not. Enough on baptism. 1 Corinthians 11.2, Paul says, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Paul delivered ordinances to the Corinthian church, and he praises them here for keeping them. Do you see that? Whatever ordinances are under consideration in the word ordinances here, Paul is praising them for keeping them. Now, they never kept the ordinance of baptism. The ministry kept that. But go to verse 17. In verses 3 through 16, Paul is dealing with the length of hair on women and on men, and the standards for that hair length when people engage in religious service. That's an ordinance. That is an ordinance that a woman ought to have her head covered when she engages in worship. Now, if she's working at a textile mill, and she's working at some weave, weaver machine, weaving machine, and she wants to wear her hair up on top of her head or cut it short and not have much to get in the way of the machine, that's one thing. But when you engage in religious and spiritual worship before God, God wants the head covered, and He makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16. That's an ordinance. 
Then he comes to verse 17. And Paul says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. He's beginning a discussion of, guess what? The Lord's Supper, communion. Go down to verse 22, still introducing his discussion of the Lord's Supper. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Paul did not praise them for the way they observed the Lord's Supper because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. Now, do you see the connection? If he praised them for the ordinances in 1 Corinthians 11:2, what two ordinances was he not talking about? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Isn't that beautiful? He'll deal with the ordinances that they weren't keeping. In the ones he doesn't mention, he praises them for the way they're keeping them. What are some ordinances of the New Testament? Why the early church had the ordinance of not eating anything offered to idols. They had an ordinance of not eating things strangled. They had an ordinance of not eating meat rare. That was during the time of Reformation. They had an ordinance of avoiding fornication. Those are four ordinances that came from the Council of Jerusalem. You don't hear much about them, do you? Came from the Council of Jerusalem. Avoid fornication, things strangled, meat offered to idols, and blood. Avoid those four things. That's an ordinance. I read over in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1 that God hath ordained civil authority and every Christian is to be subject to that ordained power position. That's an ordinance of the gospel. People are to obey civil authority. Christians are to obey civil authority. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us that God has ordained that men should abide in the calling wherewith they are called. If you're called being a servant, you ought to stay a servant. That's an ordinance of the New Testament gospel unless you have a good reason for changing that status. I read in 1 Corinthians 9.14 that God hath ordained they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. That's an ordinance of the gospel, full-time ministerial support, so that minister can give himself to the study of God's word and prayer. I read in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 that God hath ordained us unto good works. <laughs> That's pretty broad, isn't it? Good works are the ordinance of God for a New Testament church. You say, that's a whole lot of ordinances. Do you want a New Testament church or do you want an easy Roman Catholic religion to measure things by two exalted ordinances? Why, Paul gives his orders on what people are to do that are in mixed marriages. A mixed marriage is not grounds to leave. Paul gives his order on church discipline. A person that's lazy and doesn't work for his own food ought to be separated from. That's an ordinance of the gospel. Paul said he commanded it. Anything commanded by God is an ordinance because God has ordered it. Paul ordered that women should be silent in the church. Paul ordered that men ought to pray everywhere. Paul ordered that, that women or widows ought to marry and bear children and guide the house. I mean, I just gave you a sample of things that have the word law, commandment, or ordinance attached to them or ordained where God ordained things for the New Testament church. They're all equal. Nowhere does Paul exalt one above the other. How many times does Paul talk in his epistles of the Lord's Supper? You want to talk about something God's ordained that he puts a whole lot more emphasis upon? Love. And that's how I've tried to preach it. I haven't made it as plain as I have this morning, but that's what I'm preaching this morning. Love. 
That's mentioned in every epistle. That's something Paul com commanded and repeated and emphasized, but not those two little ordinances. Before this service, I dare say that 90% of you would have, if I would have asked the question, what are the ordinances of the Greenville Church, you would have said, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now you ought to say, everything that God has commanded for a New Testament church to observe, those are the ordinances of the New Testament church. We do not trace ourselves to the Philadelphia or London Confession of Faith, neither do we trace ourselves to the Westminster, and neither do we trace ourselves to the Council of Trent of the Roman Catholic Church. We trace ourselves right to Paul. Now that was a long rabbit trail, but we got him in the end. One blow from a 12-gauge put him to rest. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. At this pace, we will finish he the book of Hebrews in May of 1991. If I keep this pace for this morning. We're not going to get too far this morning. I can see that. I'm becoming more of a realist in my latter years. Hebrews 9.1, Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service. That old covenant, have you ever read the book of Leviticus? Do you think they had things ordered by God for them to do? The book of Exodus, the book of Numbers? If I was to ask you to stand up right now and explain to me the difference between a burnt, a burnt offering, a sin offering, and a peace offering, what would you do? You'd choke. That's what you'd do. What if you were to stand and ask me? I'd choke too. I can give you a little bit of a difference. It's a very complicated system of religion. A burnt offering was a sacrifice that you threw up on the altar and the whole thing went up in smoke. The whole thing was burned. Total destruction. A sin offering was an offering you brought, shed its blood, cut off the best parts and gave it to the priest and threw the fat up on the altar and it was burned up. A peace offering was one you brought, cut, shed the blood, took the best parts for the priest and yourself and threw the rest up on the altar. That's one difference between those three offerings. But there's more offerings and things than you'd believe. I mean, one offering for a leper. You're to take two birds, kill one, wring his blood out, rip his head off, pour his blood out in a bowl, take the other bird, sprinkle it with the blood. On and on it goes. I mean, when you were to come to be cleansed, you stood there and the priest came up to you, dipped his finger in blood, put it on your right ear, put it on your right thumb, and put it on your right big toe. How do you keep track of all those things? Well, God gave just enough to make sure no one could believe they had kept them all. Because that law was given to shut the mouths of all men. And what an effective job God did. Who kept the ordinances of the Old Testament perfectly? They had their ordinances. And when you read those ordinances, don't try to see a whole lot of spiritual truth in all of them. Just look at them for the fact that God gave them a bunch of complicated rules to keep in His service. And those rules were not given to teach them a whole lot because those rules didn't teach them much at all, except they were sinners. You have not found me to be much of a type and shadow preacher, and I'm going to have something to say about that in just a few verses. Because Paul wasn't a type and shadow preacher either. Because those types and shadows back there, the minute you begin preaching on them and trying to draw spiritual truth from them, we end up on a voyage without a map or a compass. And where we go is one place. It's called fairyland. 
When you start to draw spiritual truth out of Old Testament types and shadows, you're just going to manifest that you're a fool and you've got an imagination and you've been dreaming recently. Unless you limit it to what Paul said. And you'll be amazed. Paul in Hebrews chapter 9 mentions the tabernacle and all the articles in it and doesn't draw a thing hardly. Except that all of this was to picture Jesus Christ. I mean, I wonder why he wasn't worried about the fact that the priests were always to burn the dung on the altar. I wonder what most what a minister could draw out of that. They want to draw something out of every pin and pillar in the tabernacle. The point of the tabernacle was this simple. I'm going to get to this again, but I want to say it twice. The point of the tabernacle is this. The way to God was not yet opened under the old covenant. And you don't need to worry about the right ear because it got the blood applied to it as having some special significance like you all ought to sit with your right ear facing me when you hear the gospel preached. You know, someone might determine that that's listening to the radio and hearing the gospel evangelist preach through the right ear. Forget all that. The message is God hadn't revealed Himself and opened up the way for a close relationship with Him until the New Testament. The Old Covenant had ordinances of divine service, very complicated. It also had a worldly sanctuary. There was a sanctuary made in this world, made by hands. It was in this world. It was worldly. It would corrupt. Thieves could steal it. It was not heavenly. It was not perpetual. It was not eternal. There was a sanctuary in this world. Now, boys, I'd like you to pass out that outline to all the adults and the extras to everyone else. Make sure that all the members and all the adults get a copy. I want to pass out to you a picture of the worldly sanctuary just for you to visualize what the Jews had because Paul is going to take several verses to describe the worldly sanctuary. He wants you to know how it was set up. He wants you to know its articles of furniture. I find it most interesting, Paul, writing to Hebrews, tries to tell them about the tabernacle. Did they know it was Paul writing? No, they didn't know that it was Paul writing. You're a Hebrew. Those Hebrews knew the tabernacle inside and out. They knew every piece of furniture that was in it. But the anonymous author of the book of Hebrews, the Apostle Paul, tells them about the tabernacle in the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 9 in order to give himself credibility as the author of this book. I mean, if someone just came along and told a Jew, well, that tabernacle's not worth anything, you think, think they're going to believe him? You don't know anything about it. Don't be so hasty to judge our tabernacle. Well, Paul describes it in quite complex detail and then explains it, which would lend a great deal of credibility to what he has to say here. We don't have time to read Exodus 25, 26, 27, and 30. Those are the four chapters in the Bible that describe how this thing was to be made and how the furniture was to be made. There have been men who have spent their lives doing this. I mean, men who have built... Up in Ohio, there is a scale model of the tabernacle. I shouldn't... What, what does scale mean? I don't, I'm not sure that's... A perfect reproduction of the tabernacle in its literal size. You know, 150 feet long on the north and south sides. Men have spent their lives doing it this. If you want to go to Bob Jones Art Museum, this afternoon they've got a scale model drawn to scale with the, with the colors and everything 
there of what the tabernacle looked like. It's not that difficult to figure out. To make all the parts would be, and it took a bezalel to do it. Exodus chapter 31. The outline you have, 150 feet long and 75 feet wide, was a, had a curtain around it, seven and a half feet tall. That's just tall enough that you couldn't see what was going on inside. That's all. Seven and a half feet tall. Five cubits tall. A cubit being a foot and a half. Basically from your elbow to the tip of your fingers. Seven and a half feet tall. That brazen altar that you have there made of brass is seven and a half feet square. It's five cubits square. It's the first piece of furniture you would meet entering the tabernacle. May I point out something interesting at this point? We have a lot of churches today who, when they're built, Ezekiel 8, verses 15 and 16, Then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? That's all the abominations previously described. Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they worshiped the sun toward the east. In order to worship the sun toward the east, when was this service observed? In the morning. The sun is only in the east in the morning. That's why they still have sunrise services where they stand on hills and worship the sun in the east. But to do that, what did they have to do? Turn their backs on the temple of God. See, Solomon's temple was built just like the tabernacle, just about doubled in size. But the layout was the same. And they're standing at the doorway with the altar at their back, between the altar and the porch with their backs toward the temple facing the east. Just an interesting sideline to the way God set up the tabernacle. To go into the religious rites of secret societies and organizations, we don't need to do it. Just take it for granted and believe that men who have worshipped the sun or who hold any of the abominations of sun worship love the east and love a shining sun. And God made sure when you worshipped him, you were facing the opposite direction. And the Bible is very specific about how this thing was laid out. So there's a seven and a half foot high wall of cloth on pillars set all the way around this tabernacle. You come in to a seven and a half foot square brass altar. After that altar is a great big brass bowl called the laver where the priests would wash their hands and their feet before they would participate in a sacrifice. Constant washing before and washing after the offering of sacrifices. That's where the priests offered. Now this outer area is called the court. You could go in there. You'd stand in there. When you would bring your animal in to have it sacrificed, you'd lead Betsy in there, put your hands upon Betsy. The priest would kill it right in front of you. Might touch you with the blood, might sprinkle some blood on you, and you'd help throw the thing up on top, cut off the best portions for the priest, all depending on what type of a sacrifice it was. That's as far as you got. Now you see that little rectangle in the west side of the tabernacle. It's 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. That is the tabernacle. That is the sanctuary. 
This whole thing was not truly called the tabernacle. This little building, 15 feet high, high enough that if you were outside, you could easily see the top of it. 15 feet high was the tabernacle. And the first 30 feet of it is the sanctuary or the holy place. What does sanctuary mean? Sank. Holy place. Holy place. Just like sanctified, holy person. It's called the sanctuary. That's what it's called in the Bible. The sanctuary or the holy place. And then you have that little 15-foot square room about the size of a good bedroom that was called the holy of holies or the holiest of all or the most holy place. Now, there was a veil hung at the east end of that 45-foot-long building. It was hung on five pillars. There was one veil there. Then you went 30 feet, and there was another veil. Between those two veils, you have 30 feet and three pieces of furniture. You have the table of showbread on the right, a little low table, small table. Nothing was grandiose at all. Solomon took care of that. But under, in the, under the law, it was a small little table, short, and it had 12 loaves of bread on it for each tribe of Israel. And it had frankincense on the top of those loaves of bread. Every Sabbath day, the priest would come in there, take the frankincense off, and offer it up as a burnt sacrifice, and they'd eat the bread, and then replace the bread with new bread for seven more days. Every Sabbath day, the priest ate the showbread. Who else ate the showbread one day when he was hungry? David and his men. Ahimelech, the priest, brought the bread out and fed him and his men when they were famished. On the left side of that little sanctuary, 30 feet long by 15 feet wide, was a seven-branched candlestick. Very interesting. Seven-branched. I wonder why God only dealt with seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 and why he refers to his spirit as the candlestick in those particular chapters. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 in the book of Revelation. But you had a, set, a one long branch coming up and three branches coming out of each, each side where every night the priest would go in and fill it with pure olive oil and burn it all night long. And then in the morning they'd come in and dress the wicks and shut it down for the day. Then every night they'd come back. Now there's an altar of incense made of pure gold. Shittim wood laid over with pure gold there right in front of the veil had a little horn sticking out of each corner, just like the big altar, out front. Because the priest so often had to take blood and put it on all four points. Because that was to sanctify the altar. They had all these rituals to go through just to sanctify the furniture. And it was sanctified with blood. There was a small little altar made right there before the veil where incense was offered every morning and every evening when the priest came in to take care of the lamps. They'd come in, in the evening, pour olive oil into the seven candlesticks, set the seven-branched candlestick, and they'd offer incense on that little altar so that a pillar of smoke would go up before that veil because what was behind that veil but the presence of God. And that smoke was to cover that. That smoke was to appear as the intercession of God's priests, and it was to cover the presence of the infinite God. And they did that every morning and every evening. And then behind that veil was that little box called the Ark of the Covenant with a mercy seat upon it. And on the mercy seat, two cherubim facing in toward each other, looking down, which leaves a little open spot right above the Ark of the Covenant on a seat that cherubim with their wings outspread are overshadowing. 
And that spot right there was where God dwelt. Right over his law. Of all the ordinances he gave Israel. I wanted to give you a picture so that you could visualize that. I mean, we read Hebrews 9 sometimes. We don't know what he's talking about for sure. Let's now, holding that to the side, look at Hebrews chapter 9 and see if it doesn't make more sense. For those who are studious, you might want to read Exodus 25 through 27 and Exodus 30. Verse 2, For there was a tabernacle made, the first. That is the first part of the tabernacle. Can you find that? That's the room that is 30 by 15. There was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. That first compartment is called the sanctuary. What piece of furniture does Paul leave out? The altar of incense. Now, you go back and read in the book of Exodus and you read the rest of the Old Testament, that altar of incense is always in front of that veil because that altar of incense is where they offered up incense to cover the presence of God. Now, why did Paul leave it out? He left it out. He left it out to confuse men. I'm going to prove that in, in the next verse. Unless you believe the King James Bible was written by a madman. Paul left it out to confuse men. Not the next verse, but the fourth verse will explain it to us. You see the pieces of furniture, the table that had the showbread on it and the candlestick. Verse 3, And after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, the very presence of God. Verse 4, Which had the golden censer. You can read the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, and the golden censer you're never told was placed inside that second veil. Now, do you know what an altar of incense is for? It's a little tiny altar where there's a fire and you can throw incense on it and poof, out comes a big cloud of smoke that smells nice. I mean, if you were cutting animals up all day and frying their blood, do you know what it'd smell like around there? Special incense made with special ingredients and that incense could not be burned anywhere else but in that tabernacle. That was a little altar for that purpose. A censer is a little bowl that you carried on a chain, that you would go to a main altar, take coals of fire off that altar and put it in the censer, and then you could dump incense on the censer and carry the incense with you. Two very different things, but they're both related to incense. And guess what Paul does? Paul leaves out the altar of incense and includes the censer for incense that the Old Testament never tells us was placed inside the veil. Verse 4, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein, that is, in the Ark, was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. Now, not your average Gentile would know that. Remember, the author of Hebrews is unknown to the Hebrews reading the book. And here comes this author along telling them he knows what's inside the Ark of the Covenant. Those three items showing the Hebrews that he was well familiar with the Jews' religion. Verse 5, And over it, that is, over the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat. And that holy of holies, 
That whole, uh, that whole situation there of God's presence, the mercy seat, the cherubim, the ark, the golden censer, Paul says of it, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Of which we cannot now speak particularly. Paul doesn't tell us why he can't speak about it now, whether he doesn't know, whether God hasn't revealed it, whether it's too complicated for their understandings or whether he's still appealing back to Hebrews chapter 5, that he's got to be simple for them because they were dull of hearing. He doesn't tell us. He just says there's some things I could explain, but we're, uh, right now we're not going to speak particularly about them. Verse 6, Now when these things were ordained, what are those things? The furniture of the tabernacle. When the furniture was ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. I've explained that to you. They went in there every Sabbath day to replace the bread. They went in there every day to dress the lamps in the morning and to refuel the lamps in the evening and to offer incense both morning and evening. Every day the priests were always going into the sanctuary. Verse 7, But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Now, Leviticus chapter 16 tells us about this one day out of the year. It is called the Day of Atonement, the tenth day of the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. For those of you who read the little booklet, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Christ Will Come on September 11, 12, or 13, it had to do with the Jewish Day of Atonement. Our April is approximately the first day of the Jewish year when they celebrate the Passover. Remember the Passover is observed first day, not the first day, but about the 10th day, the 14th day of the first month. And when do they observe the Passover? Close to our time of Easter. It's called the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest was usually in an outfit that, that was staggeringly beautiful. He had a breastplate made with 12 stones on it, like the 12 stones for our 12 months. Those stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, he was decked out in a beautiful uniform. On this particular day, he came with nothing but white linen garments, linen breeches, a linen cloth, and a linen miter on his head. And he was the only man that went inside even the court by himself. And he took in there with him a bullock, which is a bull calf. He took in there a ram. And he took in there two goats. He washed himself. He went and got the golden censer. You say, why are you telling us all this? You read Leviticus 16. It'll tell you what I'm telling you. He took a golden censer and went into the holiest place, poured incense on his little hanging censer, and filled that room with smoke because it was the presence of God and he was going to go into the presence of God to make atonement for himself and for the people of Israel. He came back out and he killed the bullock. The bullock spilled his blood all over. He took some of that blood and he went in and stood before that mercy seat and threw that blood at it seven times. On the mercy seat, the west side, the east side of the mercy seat, and on the floor in front of the mercy seat, in front of the ark, 
he was to throw the blood seven times. That was to make atonement for himself and for the rest of the priests. Then he went back out and he took one of the goats. The goats had lots cast upon them. One goat was to become a sin offering. One goat was to become a scapegoat. He took the goat that missed the lottery and was to die and killed it and took its blood and went back into the holiest place and threw blood seven more times. And he came out and wiped that blood on the altars and the furniture. That blood made atonement for the congregation. First of all, he had to atone for himself. And I remember Paul's been appealing to that fact so far. Jesus Christ doesn't need to do that. Then he takes the blood of that goat and he makes atonement for the people of Israel. And he sanctifies all the furniture because that furniture is stuck in the middle of a sinful nation. Then they look around for a fit man. I want to preach soon a sermon called The Bible and Physical Health. But even the Bible, they knew about physical fitness. Because it says to find a fit man that could take that scapegoat a long way outside Israel and let it go. Because the priest put his hands on the head of that scapegoat and confessed the sins of all the people, and by imputation God laid the sins, not legally, brethren, but as far as the Old Covenant was concerned, in a picture form, on that scapegoat, and the scapegoat was led far out of camp and let go wild. Then the high priest went back inside and offered up the ram as a burnt sacrifice, which means he consumed the whole thing on the altar. Now the bullock and the goat were taken outside the camp and burned everything that had to do with them. And that was basically the Day of Atonement. One day out of the year was that most holy place ever opened. And only one man saw it. And no man could be standing in the sanctuary to try to peek. No man could be in the courtyard to try to peek. The high priest was in there by himself. Not until he came back to offer the ram as a burnt sacrifice could priests even join him in the courtyard. The point being, the presence of God was shut off according to Hebrews 9 and verse 7. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, the tenth day of the seventh month. And he did not go in there without blood, which he offered for himself, that's the offer of the bullock, the blood of the bullock, and for the errors of the people, that's the blood of the first goat that was to die. And what does all that mean? The Holy Spirit here is going to preach types and shadows in verse 8. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as yet the tabernacle was yet standing, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. The presence of God, as far as what God was revealing to that nation of people, was closed to men, except one man once a year with blood could get in there. The Holy Ghost was trying to teach something. He was teaching the presence of God was close to men. And all it was was a figure. Now I want to jump to verses 11 and 12 because we've got to close right now with Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. We'll come back and take up later where we left off there in those earlier verses. Verse 11. 
but Christ. But Christ. This is now the new covenant. A man has arrived on the scene that God is dealing with different than any high priest. And his name is Jesus Christ. They performed that day of atonement for hundreds of years. Over a thousand years, that service was observed in Israel. And then came Christ. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. And what is that tabernacle? It's the presence of God in heaven. It's not the New Testament church. It's the presence of God in heaven. A greater and more perfect tabernacle. It shouldn't even be compared to that old covenant. Not made with hands. This is a tabernacle, which is a place where God is worshipped and where God is meets with His people. It's a tabernacle not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. It doesn't have anything to do with the temple that was in Jerusalem. It doesn't have anything to do with Moses' tabernacle. It doesn't have anything to do with this world. It doesn't have anything to do with men, except the man Christ Jesus. It is a heavenly sanctuary, not made with hands, not of this building, and far superior to the tabernacle that Moses had made by Bezalel. Verse 12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Where did Paul pick up the blood of goats and calves? What is a bullock? A bull calf. What is a goat? A goat. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest took the blood of a calf and a goat and went in once into the holy place and redeemed the people, as far as God's revelation was concerned, from their sins. He made an atonement for the sins of those people. Would you please pretend for a moment this morning you were a Jew and how serious that service was. I mean, how sacred that most holy place was. And all the people would stand there, seven and a half foot wall curtain, hearing bleeding, lowing of the animals that were inside as they were killed, the smoke ascending up, incense leaking out of the curtains of the most holy place. And you're standing there realizing that the priest is in there throwing blood on that mercy seat. And you're convicted of your sins. And he can't go in for another year. And after the service is over, you think about your sins and you still feel like a sinner. You, that was just the blood of a goat. Stinking goat. And the blood of a bullock. It didn't put away your sin. And you realize no one can go in there to meet God again for another year. And then when they go in there a year from now, they're only going to take the blood of animals. How pitiful. How pitiful. But Christ entered into a sanctuary not like that. He entered into heaven. And He entered in with His own blood. He didn't take the blood of bullocks and of goats. He entered in with His own blood once. He didn't go in and out. He went in once and He stayed. He went in once into the holy place, the true holy place, 
those things on earth were simply figures of the true, as the Bible tells us. Having obtained annual redemption for us. Having obtained eternal redemption for us. Brethren, under the law, it was annual redemption. Every year he had to do it over again. Christ obtained eternal redemption for us. He is in the presence of God. Look at verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Forget the blood of bullocks, goats, rams, all the ordinances of the old covenant. Jesus Christ entered into the true holy place, God's very presence, and brethren, He brought blood. He appeared there as a lamb slain. That is not a white lamb, that is a red lamb. He appeared there with the full merits of His blood and offered that blood to Almighty God through the eternal Spirit, according to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, and that blood was accepted, and it provided eternal redemption for us. We don't need an annual. We've got permanent redemption. And brethren, if He obtained it, what are you going to add to it? I love Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. He obtained eternal redemption for us. Nowhere does it say He made eternal redemption possible. He obtained it for us. And there's another thing we can add to it. And this morning, as we take a cup of blood, a cup of wine representing blood, as you look at that and think of blood, I want you to think of the blood of goats and calves and those poor Israelites that were locked up and shut up under that old covenant and realize that Jesus Christ has blessed us immeasurably with a true, eternal, permanent, legal redemption. And all we have to do is remember salvation. Those Jews every year remembered sin. Hebrews chapter 10 will tell us that all those services were to remember sin. We have this service where we think of blood to remember redemption, to remember salvation. That's a big difference. May God bless us to see in all those types the fact that God was closed off to other generations of men, but Jesus Christ has busted it wide open. He tore the veil from top to bottom, 15 feet high, that separated that most holy place from the sanctuary and revealed the presence of God because now we can come boldly to obtain help and mercy at the throne of grace through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. May God bless us to see him anew this morning.